A central question I keep coming back to on this podcast is how can we influence big public companies to think more long-term and be better corporate citizens? And this is a question that today's guest has plenty to say about. Today, I'm joined by Bryn O'Brien. She is Executive Director of the ACCR, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. It's a research and advisory organisation that engages with companies on managing a whole range of issues like climate, labour, human rights and governance. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Bryn's passion for these issues shines through in this episode, but so too does the technical rigor and the financial depth that she and her team harness to drive some big changes. With a legal background, Bryn gets to the heart of how corporate democracy works or doesn't work. And she rallies like-minded groups who are all driven by a shared goal, whether that be reducing climate risk, improving labour standards or demanding greater transparency. It's shareholder advocacy founded on solid legal footings. Anyway, let's get into it. You can find all the show notes and links on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you want to leave a review, iTunes is the best place for that. Or you can do it directly through the Apple Podcast app. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Bryn O'Brien. Here we go. Bryn, thank you for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, before we dive into your work with the ACCR and your rich background as a lawyer, I have to ask about Bryn the surfer. Do you live by the beach? I do live by the beach. I'm from a small town in regional New South Wales, a beach town, and I grew up in the surf club and my particular love is body surfing. So, you know, you can find me a few mornings a week getting some sweet barrels at Maroubra, um, which is my home turf while I live in Sydney. That sounds like a good work-life balance. And yeah, the, the salt water feeds us. I'm the same, I live in Bondi and, and great to have that balance. We're very lucky. Let's dive in because Bryn, you know, this podcast, uh, central to this podcast is, is a question that keeps coming up of how we can influence big public companies to take a more long-term approach to manage issues like climate change and the social impacts they're having. Um, And and in a time when corporations are bigger than ever and wield more power than ever, what tools do investors have to drive positive change? There's a range of tools that we all have. So there's tools that big institutional investors have. There's tools that kind of consumers have. There's tools that the media has. There are all parts of society that um, have tools to influence these institutions, corporations that have this huge impact on our lives and the way that we live, the way that we work, our environment and, and, and everything else in Australia. So the tools that ACCR uses, though, and ACCR stands for the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. We're a not-for-profit kind of hybrid investor shareholder and um, civil society organisation. And our mandate is to behave like a very ethical investor. So we have a small portfolio of shares in ASX-listed companies, major ASX-listed companies, 
And we use those shareholdings for the purposes of engaging with companies to try to improve their environmental and and social performance and ultimately decrease their negative impacts. So we use uh, the tools of shareholding, uh, of using the rights that corporations law affords to shareholders in in Australia, and then in mobilising institutional capital, so big um, investors like superannuation funds and asset managers, mobilising them around proposals designed to improve company performance or make them more ambitious. Yeah, and and to my mind, this need, this, this sort of desire to engage with companies to, I guess, influence and, and control the impact that they have on our lives you know it seems that their impact is, is growing and that that this this need for investors to use their voice and to use their power is increasing and changing what do you see as, as having shifted or, or changed in the last few years I think that major companies in Australia have had a major impact on our lives for for a long time but I guess there has been you know, a over our kind of recent uh, history, a focus on privatisation of essential services. We have in Australia one of the most emissions intensive indexes in the developed world. So, you know, there are major public companies with uh, an enormous impact on um, our uh, Australia's uh, emissions and feeding into the global um, emissions and climate change problem. But I think these things have become much more recognised recently and much more understood. I also think that due to the growth in uh, the superannuation sector and the retirement savings sector, we also have as regular savers out there in the world a quite important relationship, a financial relationship with major listed companies in Australia. Most of our super funds have uh, large holdings in Australian listed equities. So that relationship is becoming better understood. I'd still say there's a lo- there's a long way to go. There's lots of people, most people out in the community don't think twice about their superannuation and, and how it's invested. But there is a, a minority and a growing, a growing uh, group of people who are actively engaged in in how their super fund invests and in what conversations their super fund has uh, with the companies that they invest in. Yeah, that relationship is a really interesting one. You know, super funds, their shareholders, their owners, um, you know, for their members of these companies. And and so in some ways, uh, I, you know, nothing has changed in, in that these big investors have always been owners of these companies. And now they're being more vocal, perhaps, about their engagement. Do you think that there was always historically that connection? Because obviously, you know, what companies do affects their returns and, and it affects the fund and their own performance. Do you think that the actual volume of engagement is shifting and that, that companies are, are being more active in, in engaging with companies? For sure. I mean, I think we've seen this growth in ESG investing and the mainstreaming of, so ESG is a bit of jargon used in the sector that'll be familiar to many of your listeners, I guess, but it it stands for environmental, um, social and governance investing. So an approach to investing that looks at risks that aren't kind of immediate financial risks that don't necessarily appear on the balance sheet but that can have an impact on long-term shareholder value and long-term company value, profitability, reputation, and so on. 
So there has been an increased focus on applying that lens to investment decision making and also to company analysis over the long term. And and that has certainly come, come a long way in the last 10 and even the last five years. And I would say that major investors who consider themselves, you know, ESG investors, which most major superannuation funds do, um, and most most of them are members of kind of responsible investing associations and, um, you know, climate aware investing programs and so on, that those funds are more active in their conversations with companies. So it's not, ESG investing isn't just about kind of screening and divestment decisions or investment decisions. It's also about transforming companies in the direction of better social or ecological outcomes, for example. Right. Okay. And and in terms of, uh, you know, we talk a lot about this process of engagement and, and you know, all of that within the spectrum of sort of ESG to, to responsible investment to impact investing. Uh, and, and we often speak to investors who are doing this. And um, where does your sort of organisation fit? Obviously, uh, you have a small shareholding, but do you operate sort of in the same way alongside larger investors in terms of engaging and opening up lines of communication? And, and how do you guys operate as an organisation? Yeah, we really thoroughly do. I would say, we're, you know, we're a, a different kind of organisation and, and we have different drivers and motivations, but I think ultimately we're very much aligned with the interests of large long-term investors, superannuation funds, um, asset managers, particularly passive asset managers that hold the whole index, because what we are interested in is long-term sustainability, both of companies and the financial system. So maybe a little bit about our community. We organise regular shareholders, individuals essentially, who hold shares in companies, maybe directly, maybe through a self-managed super fund, but they've got an interest in the kinds of issues that we care about. So we've got climate and environment stream to our work and we engage in um, you know, a lot of different activities in that stream from looking at decarbonisation of oil and gas companies through to lobbying by trade associations through to deforestation. There's a whole range of activities that and that we that we consider in that program. Then we've got our justice stream, which looks at First Nations issues, the relationships of, of companies and, and First Nations communities in workers' rights and the impact of company decision making on our individual workers as well as across the whole economy. So those are the kinds of issues that actually do matter to regular long-term investors. We've got hundreds of shareholders, individual shareholders in our community with um, holdings in major companies. And we provide a kind of organising point for them to use the powers that they have as shareholders collectively to have conversations about the issues that matter to them with companies. So one of the the key tools that we have, the technique that we use is is filing shareholder resolution or a shareholder proposal to a company for discussion amongst its shareholders and a a vote at, at its AGM. Sometimes we file those shareholder resolutions with you know, um, 0.01% of of a company's shareholders, but sometimes we'll um, have major institutional investors, you know, in the hundreds of billions of dollars filing the shareholder resolutions alongside uh, alongside us. So we've got quite a rich kind of diverse shareholder community in terms of the size of, of shareholders from, you know, trillion dollar asset managers all the way through to somebody who might own 10 stocks at $500 per stock. 
Yeah, there's quite a, a sort of a spectrum there of the, I guess, momentum you'd have going into it. Can you sort of talk us through some examples of, of some of the numbers where you've come in perhaps with a small shareholding, but you've proposed something that, that you know, the broader list of shareholders have all engaged with and you've actually, um, you know, that it's first of all managed to get to a vote. And I think that there's a bit of a process there of being able to get it onto the register that it's actually voted on um and are there any that that yeah that, that managed uh to get sort of well i guess you know this this idea of what percentage of a vote is actually sort of a win for you guys i guess is what i'm trying to think through so it's changed over time and it continues to evolve when i started in this role four years ago we were really thrilled with a kind of five to ten percent vote we you know we that might represent a few billion dollars in a major company's shareholding first resolution that i put to a major australian company was to bhp and i think in the first year we got about nine percent we got about we got some other outcomes alongside it as well um, that related to BHP's membership of the Minerals Council of Australia and the really anti-climate activities that were being done by that industry association. And we've continued that kind of thematic engagement for a few years and our numbers have built over time. So last year, uh, our um, shareholder resolutions on lobbying were getting up in the 40%. A big development, another good example would be our resolutions to Santos and Woodside, so Australia's oil and gas majors at the la at the start of last year, we put resolutions to them calling on them to um, set strategy and detail strategy aligned with the Paris Agreement and set kind of actual emissions reductions targets in the short, medium and long term in their operations and also the products that they sell. So their scope three emissions for anyone familiar with the climate jargon. And those resolutions, to our surprise, to be frank, were supported. I think at Santos, the resolution received uh, a 46%, and at Woodside, uh, the resolution received just, just on 50%. So now uh, you, you alluded to this kind of quite technical process that we have to follow. Uh, you're, you're right to draw attention to it. Even though we got 50% at Woodside on this particular climate resolution, the resolution wasn't binding on the company because there's kind of a glitch in Australian law that means that no resolution of that nature will ever bind the company. It, it just kind of exists as a poll of shareholders. Nonetheless, Woodside and Santos have both made material additional commitments since that time that we don't think they would have made had they not heard from half of their shareholders that they should. And, you know, the conversation with those companies continues. So there was actually a study done by BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager that was published at the end of last year that showed uh, they'd done some analysis on really what is the magic number. And I think they found that for shareholder resolutions that received above 20% support, there was a real correlation um, between that kind of as the threshold and then um, subsequent company action. So I think we don't speak about or think about success in terms of, of numbers. We think about success in terms of outcomes. And the 20% number seems to, at least in BlackRock's assessment, deliver on outcomes. Yeah, that's so interesting. Thank you for that. I think that's a really good overview. And and the question that, that sort of strikes me is, does that mean that all shareholder resolutions are just a poll? I don't say just because obviously, you know, if you make that 20%, then it does tend to 
send a very uh, powerful message. But is there are there different um, types of shareholder resolutions or do all of them fall into that category? There are different types. And so classic ESG resolution will be of that nature. But there is a there's a legal decision in a, a federal court affirmed in a full federal court from a few years ago, basically says the Corporations Act, as interpreted by the courts, really limits the kinds of shareholder resolutions that shareholders are able to propose to companies. And the only formally legally permissible and binding kind of resolution, according to that decision, is one to amend the company constitution or one to appoint or remove a director. But in terms of expressing an opinion about the way that the company is going, the really the only one that you can push is a resolution to change the company constitution. Now, the way that we get around that without wanting to bore your listeners too much is to file a double-barreled resolution. So we first propose a resolution to amend the company constitution to permit uh, the second kind of resolution, um, and we file them at the same time. So we request that the company amend its constitution to permit advisory resolutions on, on uh, ESG-style issues, followed by a resolution on that substantive thematic issue. That's how it's been done in Australia since 2017. Um, But um, ACCR has just for the first time filed a different kind of shareholder resolution where we're seeking to embed in company constitutions a permanent mechanism for an annual vote on climate transition plans. So that is, so we've just filed shareholder resolutions of that nature to Santos and Woodside. So after the companies received these quite large votes last year, they've both made some progress, but not nearly enough. And in our assessment, shareholders would benefit from a permanent formal conversation with those companies about their transition planning and progress. And so we have just this week um, filed shareholder resolutions calling on the companies to amend their constitutions to guarantee that they will prepare a strategy in a report on their emissions reductions plans annually and to put that report to a vote of shareholders annually. Well, look, I certainly find that detail interesting and, and I hope my, my listeners do. I think we all you know, are very aware of shareholder resolutions and, and we hear the numbers flying around. But to, to understand that that really is where the rubber hits the road and that you can, you know, we talk about impact, but, but you know, if you can, if you can uh, impact a, uh, a company's constitution, then, then that's really powerful. So I think that that's, that's interesting detail. And, and I just wonder, and this is a little bit broader, much broader, and, and it comes back to the question of, you know, why it comes down to the ACCR and, and, you know, other investors to sort of make these shifts when, you know, perhaps that's the role of government and regulation. Where do you think that fits? Why, why should investors have to sort of police poor behaviour in this way? Let's take this idea of, of an annual requirement, a binding requirement on companies that they properly report their emissions and that they give their shareholders a vote on their planning around this extremely material risk, especially for um, oil and gas companies. You know, transition is the big risk right now and none of the Australian ones are, are dealing with it effectively. Of course, government should be regulating that. Government should require 
by regulation, companies to do those things. But it doesn't in this country. It is totally out of step with with other countries um, in terms of requiring companies to disclose emissions in a in a proper and rigorous way. And you know, there's no real prospect of law reform in this under this government or even really in 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 the next term of government, as far as anyone can tell, of getting that kind of reform. So that is the attraction of a campaign like this one in this market. And I think that is absolutely recognised by our international stakeholders. I guess we we need to recognise, so while the Australian superannuation market is is very large, superannuation investors will um, only account for maybe, you know, 20% or 30% of a company Australian equity register. So, you know, the rest of that company is owned by overseas investors, I guess. I I mean, if you're looking at a kind of average shareholder register, so there are winds of change blowing from, from, from abroad and looking at Australia and saying, well, the regulatory environment is clearly inadequate. So, you know, we're going to sit around twiddling our, our thumbs, waiting for government to not only accept that climate change is real in some cases, but also to get around to reforming corporations law in order to require companies to report against standards that we think are appropriate or are we going to get the job done ourselves? And that is the opportunity that that ACCR is seeking to provide to the global institutional investment community in 2021. Yeah, and and look, to, to try and bring this home for people, I think a really good case study of this activism and engagement with companies is of course Rio Tinto um, and the Ducan Gorge and and most people will be aware of the public outcry that came from Rio destroying Aboriginal heritage sites at the gorge but most notably was the reaction from the the large investors you talk about who were quick to let Rio know this was not on and I can only imagine you looked at this very closely so I'm really keen to get your view on this this you know sort of big case study what were some key interesting points that you saw of perhaps investors that then aren't normally as vocal that had got involved or whether it was, you know, that it was the collective action of it, that a lot of them got together and, and went as a, as a force? All of those things were striking and and, and certainly I, I, I think there's still work left to do on Rio Tinto and, and as I understand it, various different strategies are being actively considered across the investment sector and within kind of First Nations leadership organisations in order to try to transform that company. But I'd say the thing that struck me most about it was the lack of understanding that institutional investors globally had of the mining sector in Australia and its relationship with First Nations communities and and country. So, I mean, what happened uh, in relation to the, the Duke and Gorge Caves was catastrophic and horrifying and there's no disagreement about that. I mean, everyone accepts that what happened was totally unacceptable. But what has surprised people has been how frequently destruction of First Nations cultural heritage happens in in this country, how commonplace it is, um, how it's a, you know, a a weekly or or even daily occurrence on mine sites in, in the Pilbara and across across various regions of Western Australia and how long-term contracts that First Nations communities have with mining companies don't guarantee consent and are, you know, highly coercive and, in fact, have bound First Nation communities up in 
gag clauses for, for, for years. So I think that there's been a real learning that's been undertaken by the investment sector over the last sort of nine or 10 months. And, and that's to the credit of the sector. I think there's been genuine engagement. I don't know that it's translated into substantive outcomes for First Nations communities yet. And that's not, a, I guess, a, a matter for me and not a, not a question for me to answer. I'm not the expert on that. But I think there are a couple of big things coming up that will test the investment sector and it's kind of whether, whether it's serious about, about this. One is the Rio Tinto AGM that's coming up. We still don't know whether there will be a push from investors to either seek some further um, commitments from Rio Tinto at that AGM about its approach to um, cultural heritage going forward or its response to the recommendations of the parliamentary inquiry. And that's, of course, still ongoing, but there's been an interim report and recommendations published and there will be another report released this year. Um, we don't know if investors will pr- will pursue board renewal. There's certainly been a lot of talk about a couple of board members and their poor performance over the last 12 months. And, you know, really what we saw at Rio Tinto was a terrible event that was undertaken by the company um, in destroying these culturally um, significant places turned into a kind of governance crisis for the company and a crisis of trust um, and a crisis of confidence in the board. And so that that issue hasn't been um, dealt with. Certainly there's been there's been change among senior executives and I think, you know, that it's a bit of a wait and see among the executives. But And I guess one of the other big tests for the company and its investors will be will they back the wishes of First Nations uh, communities and of First Nations leadership in um, seeking law reform so that this never happens again? Mm. And in both those replies, it, it seemed to be a large part this this sort of globalisation of investment. Um, and obviously, Australia is a large importer of investment and of capital. But we're realising that even though we may not have the regulation and, and we have a government that, that is quite laissez-faire, that we're being subsumed just because the capital comes from overseas. These expectations are also coming in. And I think that's quite an interesting point that may not have been factored in and, and that's really coming to prove itself and, and how powerful it's been. And of course, climate change and, and reducing emissions and, and certain expectations there um, are proving themselves out. Uh, how do you see that playing itself out in terms of you know regulations around TCFD reporting or those sorts of things is that on the way I don't think that regulation from this government is in the Australian federal government is on the way on on TCFD reporting but certainly there is uh, regulation um, that exists or that is in in progress in other jurisdictions and you know, of course, institutional investors are always looking for disclosures to be standardised and consistent as far as possible. But really, that is the purpose of our annual vote on climate or our say on climate campaign is to, you know, achieve that outcome across a bunch of major systemically important Australian companies by amending company constitutions at the same time in the same way. It's essentially a kind of a, a substitute for a regulatory process. If global institutional investors think that this is a good idea, they can see it happening in other jurisdictions and they're looking at the kind of Australian leadership vacuum in a political sense, 
then they can achieve the same result or a, a you know a, a roughly similar result by you know company constitutions company bylaws are themselves form forms of regulation they are legally binding pacts that companies have with their shareholders so it is possible to regulate companies through their own constitutions and that is what that kind of shareholder company dialogue is all about it is a regulatory mechanism you know going back to ACCR the organization itself and and the way you see the future do you have any any big hairy moonshot ambitions sort of in the long term long term goals that you'd really like to achieve lots of them you know i could probably talk about them for hours john but i guess we would really like to see investors working uh, seamlessly with civil society to uh, decrease emissions. We think that the interests of environmental organisations, of First Nations communities and, and organisations of, um, in, in many cases, the labour movement are absolutely aligned with the interests of long-term major institutional shareholders, particularly around sustainability. And we think that the, the interests of of long-term institutional shareholders are absolutely aligned with the interests of of people who who want a safe climate. So we think that better coordination, that better collaboration among different kinds of groups working towards the same outcome, you know, and advancing the interests that they are required to advance. So, for example, ACCR has a different mandate to a superannuation fund. And a superannuation fund is, of course, looking to advance the best financial interests of its members. And ACCR is looking to advance the interests of, of our members and our shareholder community. Um, and an environmental organisation is, you know, looking to advance the interests of their members in a safe and healthy environment that over a certain period of time, which is much closer than any of us are, uh, are willing to acknowledge right now, that the interests of those groups are absolutely aligned and particularly on climate change. So it is in the interests of a major superannuation fund or a massive passive asset manager to have a stable financial system in 2080. And our current emissions trajectories are not going to result in a stable financial system at 2080. I, I often ask people who tell me that they're going to be making money, you know, at three and a half degrees, you know, whether they're really long in their portfolio on weapons companies or private prisons, because really they're the kind, kinds of businesses that will, you know, profit from, from the misery of a three and a half degree world. So I don't know if that's a, that's a, a great answer to, to your question, but I think, you know, the, the moonshot for me is that those of us who want to see emissions reductions and transition and a just and sustainable society realise that we're on the same side and start acting like it. No, I, I certainly think that's a worthy mission. I think it's great. And I think when you put it in those terms, it's really hard to ignore. And I think that that's really where a lot of this momentum is coming from. And, and, and thank you for sort of describing those different groups, because I think that's a really good way to put it. You know, you've got your mission and you've got your incentives and your members and investors have their own um, and, and, and not-for-profit groups have theirs as well. And to realise that, that all of you are actually, uh, you know, you've got the same thing written on your placard as, as you rattle the gate. I think that that's a really clear indication of where we're at right now. And I think that's what's having the impact. You know, collective force is always more powerful. But Bryn, 
talking about your background, digging into a little bit more about where you sort of came from and where you're headed, your background's really impressive. You're a lawyer across business and human rights, international law, studied a master's in law, but you've also got a degree in medical science. Tell us about that career. You've done so many things. Where, um, you know, when you sort of, I don't know, when you finished your, your undergrad at uni, where did you hope to end up? So I had no plan whatsoever. I did law and medical science kind of on a whim because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do and both of them sounded interesting. I thought I might want to be a doctor and then I realised I was quite bad at science and people. So I ended up, um, as I was much better at arguing than I was at any of the other things. Straight out of uni, worked for a, one of the top tier law firms in Australia because I was a country kid and I wanted to learn the language of finance and companies and power. And, and to be honest, I've always been, I, I guess, fascinated by power. And what ACCR seeks to do is influence how power is exercised towards a more just exercise of power, essentially a specific kind of power, the power that's, you know, that, that exists in corporations law and in institutional invested, investment, but nonetheless a, a very kind of significant power in Australian society. So when I was working as a big firm lawyer, I learnt about that kind of power and, and I learnt certainly the language of power in uh, the corporate and financial sector. But I was struck by how disinterested I was in um <sighs> exercising power on behalf of the powerful or the already powerful and 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 wealthy and I, and I I mean I just found it incredibly boring and 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 not motivating at all so uh, you know at a certain point I I made the decision to to leave the to leave a law firm and to uh, work as a human rights lawyer and and then it ultimately ended up doing um yeah doing a master's and and specializing in you know bring those two things together i guess um, my understanding of business investment and finance and my understanding of international human rights frameworks which somehow um and and it's not that much of a stretch if you if you think about it i mean climate change is the number one greatest systemic threat to human rights worldwide it is going to and is already affecting every single one of us you you only need to spend you know, an afternoon in Western Sydney on a hot day to know what an impact a change in climate is is going to have on on our enjoyment of 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 rights and and freedoms and our ability to to work in 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 certain conditions, for example. So yeah, in some sort of roundabout way, now I yeah work still work in in business and human rights. I would say, even though my focus is 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 very much climate change right now. So looking at the the levers that we have under corporations law and in the investment sector to exercise power towards a future that is more just and sustainable than the one we're heading to now. You know, it may be still, given where we are, a vastly different future to the to the present that we have now. We, you know, we may already be past certain kind of um, atmospheric tipping points that that might make life more difficult for future generations. But uh, you know, a difficult life at two degrees is very different to a miserable life at four degrees. So don't know quite how, how I, I got here. I can't say any of it was very intentional, but certainly. I would say this kind of fascination with power in society and its exercise towards justice has been the kind of common thread. Yeah, no, look, that's great. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, I think, are drawn to this podcast because they feel sort of disempowered. They work in finance, but they really want to have an environmental impact or, or feel like they're making a difference. And when you think of it in terms of power, 
you know, I think that they're realizing that, hang on, this finance industry has a lot of power. You know, if we just shifted that and really focused it and got together with different groups, that that power really can have a big impact. And, and I mean, you know, that, that's my own story as well of having studied economics and then studying international law, international relations and thinking that they were disparate. But then discovering impact investing is sort of the two things uh, coming together. And that's been a great journey for myself. So, yeah, just try to sort of spread that message to people that there is a real movement going on and that there is a community that are thinking about things differently and really trying to, you know, that really respects the construct of business, of capitalism, of economics as this big, beautiful system and that we can make it positive, that it doesn't have to be sort of the negative um, evil that, that it often is is held up as being, that it's up to us to shift it and shape it and, and create the future with the decisions we make today. And so, yeah, I think I'm glad we've sort of come together on that. But look, one last question. I love a book recommendation. I have two books for you and um, neither of them have anything to do with the how of what I do and, or, and everything to do with the why. So um, one of them is a book of poems by Ellen Van Nieven. It's called Throat, a First Nations Australian uh, poet. And it's, you know, incredible, very powerful, very challenging and very beautiful. And the other is a book that I love so much because the activity that it leads me towards or that it involves with gives me so much joy is the Australian Bird Guide (laughs) Revised Edition. It is just so great to spend time out in nature, in the country, looking for all of the weird and wonderful creatures that exist on this land and you know working out what they are (laughs) it's like a little kind of adventure every time you do it you know the joy of seeing a bird that you've never seen before or even seeing a you know some sort of little creature that you haven't seen before is we need to protect those things they're my weird weird and wonderful uh, book recommendations Great. Well, I never thought we would have uh, we would have introduced you as a surfer and 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 left with you as a bird watcher. That's quite a combination. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, contain multitudes. That's it. That's it. No, no, we're getting to know you. That's great. And look, thank you so much for all of these insights. I think it's been really good. I've, I've learned a lot, and uh, and keep up the good work. Great. Thanks so much. 